Well, as you remain standing, let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that I love about new Christians is their zeal to grow. They've met Jesus, and so now they want to tell everybody and learn everything. The challenge is that they don't often know where to go to find good resources. And so most will turn to things like the Christian bestsellers list, or maybe research popular Christian podcasts. But what they find in these popular selections is often more about self-help with a little Jesus on the side than it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The impulse is good. They believe in Jesus. They know that he has redeemed them, and now they're wondering, what's next? How do I live a life according to this new faith that I have? It's a great question. In fact, it's a question that all Christians, old or new, should ask themselves. And it is the question that Paul begins to address at this point in his letter to the Philippians. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the first command we have in this letter. It's the first do statement, what we would call imperative. It's an imperative statement. And that should be telling for us. We've been studying this book for three weeks at this point. And this is the first time he makes an imperative statement. The first time he says do something. Because in Christianity, the indicative always comes before the imperative. That is, who you are always comes before what you do. And so by the time Paul gets to the what you do, he has already established the most important part, who you are, that you belong to Jesus, that you are his. quite a different approach than the top 10 ways to live your best life now that fills so many of our Christian resources. It's an important distinction to have. Because since Paul is focused on the who before the what, the what looks an awful lot different than we might expect When we finally get to the doing, we might expect him to say, okay, so now just go off. you got to pray three hours a day. you got to fill your calendar with volunteer opportunities, help older people cross the road, wipe kids' noses, and you're good. Do all the good things. And those are good things. They're good to do. I'm, I'm not saying don't do those things. You should. But... Paul's focus is on something totally different here. He calls on his people to live a life worthy of the gospel, and then instead of giving them a checklist, he highlights the values of the gospel. 
It's these gospel values that are meant to shape how we live in this world. And at this point, the two values that are front and center in our passage are unity and humility. With Christ as our strength and our example, Paul exhorts his people to live a life worthy of the gospel, united by the Holy Spirit to one another and to Christ himself, and to do so with humility. Let's start with this whole idea of unity. If we were to sit down and draw up a list of all the values of the gospel, I wonder how far down unity would be. I got a feeling it's not going to crack, crack the top ten. It's not usually one of the first things that come to mind. We, we might think of something like the fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, etc., etc. Good, good list, good values. Might make a good sermon series one day. Just keep that in mind, thinking about the future. To this we might add things like charity or worship or steadfastness. All of these things are good. Yet knowing that this church that he loves is facing divisive eternal internal challenges, Paul elevates unity. After exhorting them to live a life worthy of the gospel, he writes, So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying you need to come together. You need to live and work together, even when the boss is out of town. Have one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. It's a military image. It would have been very familiar for a people that would have been used to seeing Roman legions marching shoulder to shoulder, working together for a singular purpose. That's what Paul has in mind here. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the singular purpose of the gospel. That at the very heart of the life of the Christian family is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. As one commentator put it, the gospel becomes the shared story that unites all Christians and provides a reference point for all of their thinking and living. And there's a key point to be made here that it's, you'll see at no point is it, is it that we can't disagree, <laughs> that, that all disagreement will suddenly end. It's not, this isn't about being a bunch of yes people. And just going along with things, just toe the line and never ask questions. I know of some that argue that leaders should never be questioned, and they're completely wrong. Rather, it's when we question things or we disagree with one another, we are to remember that we are still united in the same cause. We have the same goal, the same purpose at heart. We have a shared purpose. All of us want to see the kingdom move forward. I've had the pleasure of serving at a few different churches, and one of them, if you had looked at the leadership team, there is absolutely no way you would have thought that that church could succeed for more than a week. 
The people that were in leadership were about as different as you could possibly imagine. Different ways of thinking, different ways of doing, certainly different ways of interacting with one another. And yet, we all had the same purpose, to see the gospel go out and to see people grow in faith. And so whether Jim, there, there wasn't a Jim, but we'll call him Jim, whether Jim was doing his thing his way and, and Mary was doing her thing her way, and never the two shall meet, and often they didn't. The goal was still the same. The purpose was still the same. And that gives a different perspective, doesn't it? When we have in mind that we're all seeking the same end goal, it changes our perspective. You see, when we don't know what a person's motives are, it becomes really easy to brush them off, doesn't it? Or we start to attribute to them false motives. We start filling in the blanks for them, and often that doesn't work so well, does it? We assume that our motives are as pure as the driven snow, but they're filled with conflict. I am burdened with a glorious purpose. They're just seeking their own glory. But when you know you have the same heart, the same goal, when you want the same thing, it takes the sting out of the disagreement, doesn't it? It makes it a lot easier to slow down and say, you know what, I don't love their idea, and then frankly, I'm not sure I always love them very well. But I know they love Jesus. And I know they want to see people know him. And so let's let that be the foundation. All of our committees, all of our doings, all of our ministries, let that be the foundation. It's the culture that we are trying to create here, isn't it? That whether you are male or female, young or old, introvert, extrovert, whatever race, background, previous experience, whatever it might be, we bring all of that to the table, of course, but we are all of one mind, one heart, one spirit, and that is to praise and proclaim Jesus Christ. We want the same thing for our church and for the people we are called to serve. And the reality is that living that life, having that heart, it happens best as a part of a united group of believers. You want to see a church go off the rails. You want to see a church forget its mission, forget its call. Bring in division. (laughs) Things go off the rails real fast. That's why when anything is about about to happen, anything big, I should say, is about to happen in the church, our enemies start sowing seeds of discord. And it starts small, of course, walking over to a friend and whispering in their ear, you know, I know he's trying hard, but I don't know. Or, you know, she's got a good heart, but she just seems, you know, a little tired. Maybe I should step in. I've seen more people leave churches from statements that begin like that than I have probably any other reason, including doctrine. 
the division starts. Stresses and strain, they cause these things. It's part of why Paul highlights opponents and suffering in verses 29 and 30. As we face trial and difficulty, it becomes so easy for the body of Christ to start dividing, to assume that it will be better for everyone if we just all go our separate ways. Paul is showing them that these difficulties are not necessarily a sign that you are doing something wrong at all. In fact, you are united to Christ in his suffering and united to one another as we all strive to serve Christ in the midst of suffering, that he is with us and we are together. And so we might summarize Paul's words here with, no matter what is happening in the life of the church, keep first things first. Keep your eye on the prize, we like to say. And the prize is Jesus. Keep your eye firmly fixed on him. No matter our circumstances, we praise and proclaim him. We make that as the central motivating force of our life together, and it will remain a life together. Now, you may have noticed once or twice, that the church at large hasn't always been so good at this whole unity thing. After all, just drive down to Cumsey Road for about five minutes and you'll see, I don't know, 35 churches of 35 different denominations, some of which I honestly couldn't tell you the difference between them. Not that I know every denomination. A lot of them, From day one, it seems, the church has been dividing itself, fighting amongst itself. It's why when I hear people talk about, oh, we need to be more like the New Testament church, I'm like, guys, we're pretty much right there. We fight amongst ourselves just as well as they have. I mean, read these letters, right? Paul's about to address a division going on in this Philippian church. And I got to tell you, this epistle is one of the churches that are doing really well. Read Galatians or 1 Corinthians sometime. And so if we've never been any good at it, how does it happen? What is the basis of it? Because it can't just be lowest common denominator. Let's pretend like differences don't matter. Or just brush them under the rug and hope they go away. That has never worked So if that's not it, it's got to be something more foundational. And it starts with the Spirit of God, His presence in and among us. I would agree with those who argue that when Paul speaks of having one Spirit in this passage, it's the Holy Spirit that he has in mind. It's not just a generic, you know, uh, spirit, like way to go team. It's the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, because he is the one who, who binds us together in this common gospel cause. After all, the main thing the Holy Spirit does is put a big old spotlight on Jesus. He points us to him. He reveals Jesus to us. And he makes us more like Jesus. And so unity comes from the Holy Spirit working to unite us, first and foremost, to Jesus 
and then to one another. We have this one spirit reference. And then as chapter 2 begins, Paul follows his command about unity with an if statement. The thing we want to know here is that this is actually not a conditional if. It's more like an if certainty, if you will. He's, He's acting like a lawyer. He's building a case here. Okay, if this then, with the assumption that if is absolutely true. He writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, we could say if there is any comfort from love, continuing any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's assuming all of these things are there. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's all unity language. And all of those things that precedes the unity language are things that come from the Spirit of God. Even the language that he used here is a little hat tip in that direction. This word that we have here, encouragement, it's translated from the Greek parakalesis. And that all means a lot to you, I know. It's closely related to the word parakletos, which means comforter or helper. You're all looking at me like, who cares? Well, that is the title that Jesus gave to who? The Holy Spirit. He is the paraclete, the helper, the comforter. And so if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort, then we need the one who is himself comfort and encouragement. We need the Spirit of God. And sharing in the Spirit of God, we become bound together as those who participate in Him, who share in the life and the love and the comfort and the encouragement that He brings as we come together before Jesus. That is how the life of the church works. It's not that the church is filled with a whole bunch of really good people and it all just kind of works. The people that fill the church are not perfect. The God who creates the church and binds us together as imperfect people is perfect. He is the one that causes it to happen. I got to see this play out almost in real time recently. I got to visit with a a woman who had not been in a church for over 10 years For various reasons, she had not attended, and then it got to the point where she was physically unable to attend anymore. Through our conversation, what became very clear to me was that this woman loved Jesus. Even with the the lack of church attendance that had occurred, the, the separation that was there, she loved Jesus. But there was something missing, and she knew it. As I sat and talked with her, just the, her love of Jesus and, and her, her thing that was missing was just becoming more and more clear that her lack, her, her, her separation from the body, the body of Christ, the church, had weakened her. And so we prayed together, we talked together, and convinced of her faith, we confessed together, and then we shared communion together and as we were doing this the tears started streaming down her face 
It was as if she was being reintroduced to a friend that she felt she had lost so long ago. By the Spirit of God, this dear Christian woman was being reintroduced to the body of Christ. As we shared in the one bread, in the family meal, she was reminded that she was not alone. And that indeed was an encouragement and a comfort and a love for her, but not just for her, for me as well. I got to see the Spirit of God at work in someone, and he was at work in me too, reminding me why it is I do this. Sometimes I need that reminder. Sometimes all pastors need that reminder. To see God go to work on people, to be reminded again of people's need for Jesus and to be united to his body. It is a beautiful thing to see happen. And it was a gift and an encouragement for me to watch it happen. But we need his spirit for it to happen. That is where our unity comes from. Very briefly. Our unity will not happen without the Spirit of God and it will not happen without humility. It's one of the things that the Spirit creates in us. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is not a natural thing for us. (laughs) It is far more our instincts to look out for our self-interest. In fact, we're told that that's what we're supposed to do, that we're supposed to care for ourselves above anybody else, to take care of ourselves first, look out for number one, everything else will take care of itself. That's what we're told. And we have drank deeply of that teaching, even in the church. And so when we hear Paul of saying, count, count someone as more significant than you, it kind of grates on us. Because it sounds like he's saying that we're less valuable than other people. But that's not what he's saying. It's as Tim Keller states, Pastor Tim Keller, that humility is not about thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Because the truth is that you are of exceptional value. You are one that Christ died for. You are made in the image of God. You can't be of more value to him. You are also one that needed to be saved and could not save yourself. And so you are not perfect. And that is true of each and every person. Each and every person you encounter is one that is made in the image of God and one that Christ came to live and die for. And so thinking of them as more significant than yourself is not a diminishment of your own value. That can't happen because your value comes from God. It is merely reflecting the heart of Christ, the heart that he has shown to you, to that other person. That is where our humility is born of. That is something the Spirit of God gives us. Our pride seeps in. Our pride almost always seeps in, doesn't it? And so we want to look out for ourselves. It happens to all of us. It happens to me. I know you're all shocked to hear, but it does. 
course I want to be the, the guy that made the big church in town so I can go to the diocesan meetings and be like, look at me. Have my head grow three sizes bigger right on the spot. The problem is every time I feel that way, every time that starts seeping in, I'm less like Jesus, aren't I? That's what selfish ambition does. It's not ambition general that's the problem. We should be ambitious. Ambitious for Jesus. Ambitious for the gospel. But it's our selfish ambition. It's our vain conceits that drive us away from him. That cause us to live out values that have nothing to do with Christ. And so when these things come, we ask for his forgiveness. That's a humbling thing, isn't it? It is a humbling thing to come before God and ask for his forgiveness. It's a humbling thing to come before anyone, isn't it? And say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? It's part of why we need to do it. Great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He tells the story of a young man who came to visit him. This young man was afraid that pride was creeping into his heart, and so he wanted help. First of all, how awesome is that? That this guy recognized what was happening, and so he asked for help. It's a step towards humility right there, isn't it? He wanted help, and so Jones replied to him, I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer more because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. How true that is, my friends. We cannot be anything but humble looking at the face of Christ who had everything and laid it aside that he might come and serve us. And that is where the rest of our passage takes us. And I have zero time to get into it. I mean, it's only one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture and one of the most rich and deep. So why would we want to talk about that, right? Well, you all have to come back next week. (laughs) But for now, the call that Paul places on his people is clear. To live together united together by the Spirit of God and the humility that the Spirit of God gives us, looking to Jesus. We ask the Spirit of God to give us eyes that might see Jesus, to see him as he is, and to see ourselves reflected so that we might again be reminded of our need for him. We do this over and over again as one people with one, bo- with one mind, the one body of Christ, striving st- side by side that more and more people might see Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that by your Spirit, we see ourselves as we truly are, valued and loved beyond what we could ever actually imagine, and yet in need of redemption, And Father, so I I pray that you would help us to see one another by that same spirit. To see one that you love. To see one that loves you. And in that spirit, you would make us one body 
to serve with the singular purpose of praising and proclaiming Jesus Christ that many might know him. We thank you, Father, for the work that you have done in each of us and in all of us. And we pray that for generations to come, this would be a place that loves you and faithfully proclaims you as your body. In Jesus' name, amen.